0: Psychiatry in the last 20 years, the time period I have been an active observer of, has evolved substantially. Ten years ago, what we knew may resemble to someone standing on a street corner and being able to recognize the brands of the cars that pass by, and that's about it. What is now known is not only the brand of the cars, but also what is under the hood of the car, what kind of engine is in there, diesel for strokes, electric or hybrid what kind of transmission the car has, manual or automatic, what kind of traction, front wheel, rear wheel or four wheel drive and so on. In another 10 years we might know what kind of pistons are inside the engine, what kind of cogwheels inside the transmission. These impressive advances of science in general have tempted some, such as Charles Duell, the director of Bureau of Patents in 1989, to believe that, quote, all that can be invented has already been invented, unquote. A statement in retrospect, downright ridiculous, since only a few years later, the explosion of informatics opened the door to a much more vast chapter of human discovery than anything that happened up to that point. Ray Kurzweil, in his book, The Singularity is Near, predicted correctly that we are not going to experience a slowing down of the scientific discovery as if we are nearing the edges of knowledge. On the contrary, not only that science is not slowing down, as if it is increasingly more difficult to find out something new about the universe, but rather the pace of scientific discovery is accelerating. Kurzweil predicts that we will reach a point, which he called a singularity, where the rate of scientific discovery is going to exceed human ability to assimilate it. And in that moment, human race will have to invent ways to increase intellectual power much more than biological evolution can deliver. He suggests that in time, people will begin to improve themselves using genetic engineering, nanotechnology, artificial intelligence. People will necessarily become a sort of hybrid between human being and machine. But until we get there, let's try to focus on a much less complicated subject, but, sh- but which still does very well illustrate the acceleration of scientific discovery, namely the question of marijuana. The universe was born 13.8 billion years ago with a tremendous explosion, the so-called Big Bang. The solar system was formed 4.5 billion years ago. Life began on Earth 4 billion years ago. Only 200 million years ago, mammals split from reptiles. 60 million years ago, primates split off from mammals. 20 million years ago, hominids branched out of primates. 200,000 years ago, Homo sapiens won the survival competition after the Neanderthals, Denisovans and possibly other 10 or more varieties of humans went extinct. Modern humans languished in a way for 150,000 years in the Great Rift Valley. That is a geological trench formed when the African tectonic plates started splitting into two separate parts, drifting apart from each other and forming in the process a valley that stretches from Ethiopia through Kenya and Tanzania. Only 50,000 years ago, modern humans began to migrate In the south, they went only down to the tip of Africa, where they had to stop since they had nowhere to go from there. But in the north, the path was free to populate all earth, including the American continent, by crossing the Bering Strait, which at that time was a permanent bridge of ice. The first station of this migration was, though, the Near East, in the Near East, the signs of modern civilizations appear in the form of the first cities, which date around 10,000 years ago. It happens that in the same period, people stumbled across the first and oldest addictive substance, namely alcohol. Marijuana followed relatively quickly, 5,000 years ago. In fact, what was known at that time, 5,000 years ago, was a variety of marijuana called hemp cultivated especially for its fibers, out of which people made ropes, weave sails for boats, and later on made paper to print books on. By the way, the first book ever printed the Martin Luther's translation of the Bible from Latin to German was printed on paper made out of hemp. Hemp is one of the varieties of the plant called cannabis, but a variety that contains very few psychoactive substances. Hemp contains 0.1% Delta tetrahydrocannabinol or THC, while varieties of cannabis grown specifically for smoking contain 20% or even 30% THC. Three varieties of cannabis, namely sativa, indica and to a lesser extent ruderalis, are loaded with psychoactive substances called cannabinoids, of which THC and cannabidiol play the most important role. As a curiosity, cannabis is a Latin word derived from the Thracian language that means the language of the population south of the Danube River on the territory of today's Bulgaria. The use of marijuana for medicinal and intoxicant properties was attested in writing for the first time by Herodotus 2,540 years ago. But it is possible that people discovered the psychopharmacological properties of marijuana even far before that time. In Europe, until Christopher Columbus, marijuana was used in the vast majority of the situations as a medicinal herb in the form of alcoholic extract or tincture. Smoking marijuana remained a very marginal practice for the simple reason that introducing various substances in the body by inhaling the smoke these substances cause when they burn is something that did not cross the minds of the Europeans at that time. Inhalation of smoke as a way to administer substances into the body was introduced widely in Europe by Christopher Columbus when he brought the tobacco plant with him from the newly discovered American continent. So, Christopher Columbus familiarized the American Indians with the metal of the sword and bullets, and they, in exchange, gave Europeans syphilis and tobacco the first forms of uh, fair trade between the two continents. So, marijuana as a drug of addiction stayed out of the limelight for thousands of years. Extracts of marijuana have been on the shelves of pharmacies in America and Europe routinely until 1930s. A decisive point in the history of marijuana was the beginning of 1930s in the United States. It came under the form of a propaganda movie disguised as a full-length feature film entitled "Reefer Madness. The film was funded by a religious group and directed by Louis Gasnier, a French-born American film producer. The film presents the story of several characters that fall prey into the addiction of marijuana and start killing, raping, committing suicide, ending up in prisons or psychiatric hospitals. In short term, this propaganda paid off because it raised a wave of indignation that culminated into a veritable declaration of war against marijuana. In long term, though, this strategy backfired. The film is nowadays used by marijuana enthusiasts as an argument to discredit any opposition to marijuana as just another bunch of lies from the same category as the good old reefer madness movie. Harry Anslinger, head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, was the one who embedded into law the categorical rejection of marijuana by the United States public. In 1934, the state uniform law against narcotic drugs, promoted by Enslinger and accepted by a public sensitized by the movie Reefer Madness, placed marijuana in category 1 of illicit drugs, which contains substances with no medical value and whose use is forbidden in any form under any circumstances. Even morphine and cocaine are in category 2, which means that products based on these substances are permitted for medical purposes, while marijuana has remained until now in Category 1. As a curiosity, the word marijuana comes from Mexican Spanish. Some say it comes from the name Mariajuana, the Spanish equivalent of the American Mary Jane, but others say it comes from the word Juan, which means prisoner in a Mexican Indian dialect. Quite appropriate for an addictive product, I might say. Harry Enslinger was the one who promoted the name marijuana, possibly for two reasons. First, it would have sounded pretty ridiculous to declare war against hemp, which in most people's minds was associated with fabric and robes. And secondly, a clearly Hispanic-sounding word appealed to the racist sentiments common in the anti-Hispanic white population at that time. A second chapter in the history of marijuana was demarcated by the hippie movement. The movement began in 1960s with origins in the anti-Vietnam War and from that discontent a social movement was born that rejected the traditional value of the majority of the American society of that time. As for example work in giant national corporations, the so-called cradle to grave employment, raising a family, formal education, competing for accumulating material possessions. The hippies raised against the conservative culture of the society, and not a small part of their defiance was the widespread use of psychoactive drugs. By far, the most widely used drugs at that time became marijuana. Smoking cannabis became practically the background of the movement all through its existence. It is possible that marijuana facilitated, if not directly, caused the typical lack of direction, ambition and generally the lack of objectives of this movement. Part of the social effects of the hippie culture was also the widespread and massive consumption of marijuana by millions of Americans at that time. And when you have such a massive and lasting use of any drug, there's plenty of time to see the real effects of on the consumers. It came out very clearly that marijuana is far from the poison image that religious and conservative groups were presenting it to the public. So gradually we are getting to the controversy marijuana creates. On one hand we have the traditional image of marijuana as a dangerous and completely useless substance. On the other hand we have the image of marijuana as a minor guilty pleasure at least when compared to the other two legal vices, alcohol and tobacco. On one side, we have the American federal law, unchanged since 1930s, religious groups, the core of the Republican politics, and even a solid minority of Democrats, the judiciary system, police, medical staff, the majority of the population of mature age, dead set against marijuana. And on the other side, liberals, fringe groups, artists, Hollywood, younger population mostly, all not quite understanding why was the smoking of this plant ever outlawed. In recent years, the controversy has become one of the most discussed topics in American public opinion. Unfortunately, the attacks against marijuana by a fragment of the society, essentially well-intended, were exaggerated without scientific basis. This, while it did yield some advantages in the beginning of the controversy, as the time passed by... And new information about marijuana was coming in, the pro marijuana movement was gaining momentum. At present, in the United States, there are two small radical groups which oppose each other. The radical groups for and against marijuana constitute a minority of the population, while the majority is somewhere in the middle, no longer knowing what to believe. But it seems that this undecided population is tilting towards legalization. The inflection point was 2013, when opinion polls showed for the first time since 1930s that the majority of the public opinion, namely 55%, is on the side of legalizing marijuana. Let's look more into detail into this controversy. An Israeli researcher, Rafael Mechulam, working at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, was the first to isolate the active substance in marijuana. In 1960s, while working on samples of marijuana seized by the police from drug traffickers, since in Israel is also illegal, he identified the two main psychoactive components of marijuana, namely delta-9-tetrahydrocannabinol and cannabidiol. Since then, more than 85 related substances have been identified belonging to this group called cannabinoids, 28 years later, in 1998, Alan Hollett and William Devane from Wakefield, Wakefield Forest School of Medicine isolated by radioimmunoassay cannabinoid receptors in the brain of mice. Very quickly, it was found that there is an entire system of receptors for cannabinoids, not only in the brain, but also in the rest of the body. This system was called the endocannabinoid system. Remarkably widespread in the animal world, not only in all mammals, but also in marine invertebrates, such as the sea squirt or acidia. Receptors in the central nervous system have been termed CB1 and those in the periphery CB2. And, surprisingly, it seems that many cells of the immune system have cannabinoid CB2 type receptors. Of course, where there are receptors, there must be also neuromediators who act on those receptors. That means chemicals produced by the body who stimulate those receptors. It took some time, but now we know that the human body synthesizes its own cannabinoids called anandamide and 2-arachidonoyl glycerol. CB1 and CB2 receptors, therefore, are present in the body for these two particular substances. And the cannabinoids are just some plant compounds that happen to be similar in structure with anandamide and 2 glycerol, And therefore, able to act on and stimulate these CB1 and CB2 receptors. We will look now at the major arguments for the use of marijuana for medical purposes. Right from the get-go, marijuana proponents insist that the plant treats over a hundred diseases. Any serious doctor, when hearing such a claim, becomes instantaneously very suspicious. Until now, there is no medicine on the face of the earth that can treat over a hundred diseases. But, nevertheless, let's look at some of the most commonly talked about medical properties of marijuana. One, increased appetite in AIDS and cancer patients. It is true that st- studies in 1971 have shown an association between cannabis use and short-lived appetite increase with some preference for sweets. But studies in AIDS patients are ambiguous at best. This increase in appetite does not clearly translate into an increase in weight in AIDS patients. A meta-analysis of multiple studies was made by Lutge. Gray, and Siegfried in Peter Marisburg in 2013. They reviewed all studies published in the medical databases Medline, Embase, Central, CCTR. Their conclusion was that smoking marijuana does not decrease mortality or morbidity in AIDS. But there is some kernel of truth in the link between weight gain in AIDS patients and marijuana. In a placebo-controlled studies, there was a statistically significant but small difference between active treatment group and placebo namely 0.1 kg weight gain in the active treatment group compared with 0.5 kg weight loss in the placebo group. But that study did not use marijuana cigarettes, did not even use THC, tetrahydrocannabinol. It actually used dronabinol, a cannabinoid synthesized by the pharmaceutical company Solvay. Dronabinol is on the American market under the name of Marinol since 1985. And as a footnote, dronabinol happens to be extracted from sesame seeds and not from marijuana, but it is nevertheless part of the cannabinoid family. Studies about weight gain using marijuana cigarettes are at best mixed in their results. A study done in Cantonal Hospital of St. Galen in Switzerland with 234 cancer patients did not notice any changes in weight or appetite among patients treated with marijuana or cannabis extract versus placebo. As you see, the fact that smoking marijuana leads to a brief increase in appetite doesn't necessarily mean that marijuana is a miracle drug for the treatment of weight loss in patients with AIDS or cancer. The irony is that many psychiatric medications increase weight to a far greater extent than marijuana, and this is considered a huge headache in most of the circumstances. The biggest culprits from that point of view are olanzapine, clozapine, valproic acid, lithium, mirtazapine. In 20 years of practicing psychiatry I have not seen one patient complaining that marijuana caused them to become obese. While some patients treated with olanzapine or clozapine start inflating like a balloon after four or five months of treatment with those medications. Of course, it would be absurd to use neuroleptics to help AIDS or cancer patients to gain weight. But if those patients happen to suffer from a psychosis or a mood disorder, then they have much more effective medications than marijuana that can treat both their psychiatric illness and weight loss in the same time. Now, two. Multiple sclerosis. Here, we have something unusual in marijuana research. In 2009, Lacan and Rowland, researchers from the Global Neuroscience Initiative Foundation, have reviewed the databases, Medline, PubMed, Central, Ovid, for studies related to the use of marijuana in the treatment of multiple sclerosis. Their conclusion was that indeed, spasticity in MS was marginally improved by the marijuana effect, that though didn't last too long after the cessation of the treatment. What is unusual about this is that this is a very rare example of studies concerning marijuana that were able to prove objective improvement. That means improvement when objective measures are used and not just subjective reports. The vast majority of marijuana related studies only look at subjective improvements, that means changes that patients themselves report and not something that can be measured objectively, independent of the patient's opinion. And this is a big problem for marijuana studies, and maybe also a clear explanation of why people from all over the world praise the medicinal properties of marijuana. Well, if you administer a substance which produces a pleasant state, of course, no matter what you treat, patients may tend to report an improvement in all the problems you might ask them about. The same as winning the lottery can make people feel that they are cured of arthritis and gout and epilepsy and migraine and many others. Now, something much more serious. Even multiple sclerosis is a very serious subject. But when we bring about the topic of cancer, then everyone is going to pay attention. Let's see what the marijuana enthusiasts have to say about cancer neither more nor less that marijuana is a cure for a lot of cancers such as astrocytoma, glioblastoma, bladder cancer, breast cancer, melanoma, melanoma, cancer of the immune cells, and most daring of all, cancer of the lungs. The lung cancer cure claim is interesting. Biochemists found in marijuana smoke 70% higher quantities of the same carcinogen as in tobacco smoke. Uh, For example, one of them is benzopyrene which inhibits P53 gene. This gene, when not impaired by benzopyrene, prevents the proliferation of cancerous cells. So if researchers found 70% more benzopyrene in marijuana smoke, it's very normal to pull the alarm signal and warn the public about the danger of cancer when smoking marijuana. But it seems at this time, marijuana opponents were quick to draw premature conclusions. A major study done in California in 2005 by the National Institute of Drug Abuse, led by Dr. Donald Tashkin, did not find any evidence of any connection between smoking marijuana and cancer of the lungs. But it's also failed to find any protective effect of marijuana smoking against lung cancer, what the marijuana proponents actually hoped to see. This study was the best kind, that means prospective. First, it identified 5,000 marijuana smokers who used marijuana cigarettes daily, at least three joints every day, and followed them for no less than 20 years, which is really impressive. If this study did not find any association between marijuana and cancer of the lung, then we can say with enough certainty that marijuana does not cause cancer of the lung. But how can one say something like that when marijuana smoke contains the same carcinogens or even in higher quantity than tobacco? And smoking tobacco, beyond doubt, causes several forms of cancer and especially lung cancer. Countless studies prove that smoking tobacco increases 20 times the risk of lung cancer. Then how is it then possible that smoking marijuana does not cause lung cancer? There are two possibilities. Either marijuana contains substances that protect the lungs from the damage caused by benzopyrene, or researchers overlooked a quote-unquote little detail. Smoking tobacco is categorized as massive when it involves more than 40 cigarettes per day, while smoking marijuana is considered massive when it involves more than three cigarettes a day. So simply it is possible that smoking marijuana doesn't cause cancer because smoking three joints of marijuana leads to inhaling much less smoke. That means much less carcinogenic substances than smoking 40 tobacco cigarettes. But let's address the anti-cancer properties of marijuana. It all started in the Competence Universidad Madrid in 2004. At that time, Cristina Sanchez, who holds a PhD in molecular biology, was studying the metabolic effects of cannabinoids on human cells. She worked on a cell culture called C6, which comes from a line of tumoral cells originally derived from a glioma, which is a glial cell cancer of the central nervous system. Sanchez was interested in studying the metabolic effects of cannabinoids, but she stumbled upon a quote-unquote problem. It was impossible to study metabolic effects of cannabinoids because once the cells were exposed to solutions of cannabinoids, they died. The so-called problem led to a research subject far more important. Cristina Sanchez established that tumor cells coming from a variety of origins died when exposed exposed to cannabinoids. Since 2004, there have been many studies that replicated Cristina Sanchez's finding. And not only that, in principle, you can kill cancerous cells by exposing them to pure water. Through osmotic pressure, water accumulates inside the cells until they burst. So cannabinoids destroying cancerous cells is in itself without much value. The second stage is to check whether the cannabinoids kill tumor cells without affecting the normal ones. And indeed, this is what was happening. Normal cells do not appear to be affected by cannabinoids. But do not get too excited yet. The next stage would be study to study these effects in vivo, that means on laboratory animals. At this stage, as it is the case with many other anti-cancer substances, cannabinoids stopped appearing so miraculous. Studies on mice have shown that intratumoral injections with cannabinoids cure 20 to 30% of the mice with glioblastoma and in a significant additional percentage, at least temporarily, it stops the growth of the tumor. The cannabinoids kill cancerous cells through several mechanisms. Cannabinoids have an anti-proliferative effect, anti-metastatic effect, anti-angiogenetic effect and, most interestingly, an apoptotic effect. Apoptosis designates the natural death of a cell that follows, necessarily, after a certain number of cell divisions. Cancerous cells lose uh, this trait and multiply forever. It looks like, somehow, cannabinoids acts, acts as a memento mori for cancer cells, reminding them that it is time to die. That means they turn on the genes that cause normal cells to self-destruct after a specified time or after a certain number of cell divisions. It is a fascinating and vitally important trait of all the organism, all the cells in the organisms. As living cells multiply, they get increasingly burdened by more and more errors in the genetic code, up to a point after which the cells become completely unable to work harmoniously within the body. The genetic code is somehow aware of this fact and has prepared a cyanide pill in the form of a gene that, when enabled, it causes the cell to self-destruct. When the suicide gene is blocked, as for example by benzopyrene, cells do not die. But because they become loaded with genetic mistakes, the cells become monsters, psychopaths, and begin to invade and destroy whatever tissue lies around. And what is even more of a problem, no longer adhere to one another so uh, so well, therefore, start spreading throughout the body and seed distant tissues with these abnormal cells. Slowly, this whole enormous system of cells, that is the human body, starts failing and can no longer survive. So cannabinoids remind the cancer cells that have exceeded their allowed number of divisions and must commit suicide as any other decent cell. The normal cells are not affected at all because they did not forget to self-destruct, so it is a reminder that has no effect. It all sounds very elegant in theory, but so far there is no serious study, either placebo-controlled or at least controlled by comparison with other already anti-cancer medication, to confirm this uh, anti-cancerous effect in human subjects. So marijuana passed the in vitro test, somewhat passed laboratory animal tests, but tests on human subjects simply do not exist. Some studies, though, are being undertaken. There's a study in Leeds, England, using Sativex, a marijuana product, for glioblastoma. A study in Glasgow, Scot- Scotland, using Dexanabinol, another cannabinoid, for metastasized solid tumors. And another study in Hadassah Medical Center in Israel using cannabidiol for solid tumors of any kind. And there are several others as well. So there is potential, but at the moment touting the anti-cancer properties of marijuana is downright absurd. History of medicine is full of promising ideas, very logical, very rational, but which do not survive the scrutiny of scientific studies in vivo on human subjects, which is the ultimate measure of the efficacy of any medical treatment. And, as uh, we close the discussion once and for all, the anti-tumor properties of cannabinoids occur at much bigger concentrations than those likely to be obtained by smoking marijuana. So it is absolutely unfounded to claim that smoking marijuana prevents any cancer of any kind. 4. Now let's take care of a more familiar issue for psychiatry. The claims about marijuana's positive effects on the mind. First, an aspect which is simple and undisputed. marijuana makes people feel good. And what does that mean? In chemical terms, marijuana causes indirectly a surge of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens and the ventral tegmental area. But not only that, causes relaxation, which is indeed in certain circumstances a very desirable condition. Causes forgetfulness. Now, although it is hard to accept forgetfulness as a positive thing, using an argument more or less tenuous, one can say that oblivion under certain conditions can be desirable. For example, when you want to fall asleep, it becomes very problematic if your memory starts bombarding you with an endless list of important things that you still did not resolve and with the accompanying guilty feelings for wasting your time trying to fall asleep instead of working to resolve them. Or when you are trying to forget a painful event of your life that caused a post-traumatic stress disorder. But this remains a tenuous argument because... The kind of forgetfulness marijuana causes is mostly for material that you are trying to retain while you are intoxicated, not for information that was acquired before the intoxication. So, let's say, so far, arguments for marijuana use are still standing. Barely, but still standing. Now, when marijuana proponents begin to speak about curative properties in major depression, generalized anxiety disorder, idiopathic insomnia, It all starts to appear very suspicious. It looks like marijuana enthusiasts completely confuse the symptoms with the disease. The fact that marijuana creates a temporary euphoria does not mean it is a treatment for this complex disease called major depression. The fact that it relaxes people for a couple of hours at a time and produces temporary amnesia does not mean that it will treat the disease called generalized anxiety disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder. In fact, we need to clarify this in a very emphatic way. Marijuana treats major depression, generalized anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder. In the same way, a band-aid treats skin cancer. Marijuana may temporarily hide the problem, but does not change the outcome of the disease. Furthermore, legitimate psychiatric medications that could be useful in these circumstances tend to lose their effectiveness in the presence of marijuana. Is even more outrageous to claim that marijuana has therapeutic effects in psychiatric illnesses because marijuana is the only street drugs that has been shown to cause schizophrenia. Of course, many drugs like heroin, cocaine, LSD, PCP, psilocybin and others may mimic many mental illnesses including schizophrenia. But they do not cause schizophrenia since the symptoms disappear once the patient is out of their influence for a few days, rarely weeks. Marijuana is an exception. It can cause the illness called schizophrenia, and even the removal of the causal agent, that means marijuana use, will not solve anything. Once it is triggered, it will have a chronic course like any other schizophrenia, and it condemns the patients to taking neuroleptics, in most of the cases, for their entire lives. It must—I must I must say that the effect is small, but can hardly be challenged. Many studies have proved This issue. For example, one solid study in Sweden, three studies in the Netherlands, three in England, one study in Australia, two in New Zealand, all showing clearly that marijuana causes schizophrenia. In particular, the Swedish study is very hard to ignore because it includes 50,000 patients tracked for 20 years. Again, a prospective study. Initially, the subjects were individuals without any pathology. They were tracked for two decades. In the group that, for a variety of reasons, started using marijuana, the incidence of schizophrenia was four times higher than in the group of those who did not use marijuana at all. In the New Zealand studies... Those who begin to smoke marijuana daily at age 15 years of age have a risk of 4.5 times higher than the general population to have their first episode of schizophrenia before the age of 26. I would say a rather small effect compared with the 20 times higher incidence of lung cancer in tobacco smokers but statistically significant anyway. What does it mean statistically significant? That means the chances of this finding happening just by coincidence is 5% or less. Marijuana supporters immediately jumped on the classic argument. Correlation does not mean causation. Maybe the same risk factors causes both schizophrenia and addiction to marijuana. Maybe a certain gene or combination of genes cause both marijuana and schizophrenia. But if the genes causing schizophrenia can also cause addiction to marijuana, then the relatives of patients suffering of schizophrenia should have an increased risk of addiction to marijuana. And that is simply not true, since there are studies showing that if you have a relative sick of schizophrenia, you do not have a higher risk to become addicted to marijuana. You do have a higher risk to develop schizophrenia, but not an increased risk of addiction to marijuana. Once that hypothesis was off the table, marijuana enthusiasts came up with the idea that marijuana is some kind of natural treatment to which future schizophrenia patients are attracted in an attempt to escape some discrete prodromal symptoms of this illness present even before it becomes completely manifest. This way, causing the appearance of causation when in fact it is just a treatment attempt of an illness that is about to happen. This hypothesis was also shattered by studies showing that people with schizophrenia have an increased risk of becoming dependent to any drug, some of them clearly associated with deterioration and not improvement of prodromal symptoms. So uh, the three theory of treatment doesn't really stand either. No matter how you look at it, marijuana as a treatment for psychiatric illness is a complete aberration. Finally, I will discuss another argument often used by those who want to legalize marijuana for recreational purposes. Honestly, the mere idea of using marijuana for recreation is absurd. Words like recreation should be reserved for healthy activities that regenerate the mind and the body. For example, physical exercise, traveling, hiking in nature, listening to music, playing an instrument. Using this term, recreation, to describe uh, what happens when you smoke marijuana is outright bizarre. It can be said that marijuana relaxes people, but it's absolutely ridiculous to say it recreates since smoking marijuana does not make people stronger and more motivated to start working the next day and provide a useful service to the society. On the contrary, after a day of smoking marijuana, your ability and willingness to put in a good day's work will be lower than before. Once this becomes obvious, the argument changes into, what's wrong with using it? It ultimately makes people happy and doesn't kill anyone. True, its direct toxicity is very low compared with heroin and cocaine. But it is also true, uh, the same for chewing coca leaves or eating poppy seeds. Try ingesting pure THC and then you will see little difference in the toxicity of this substance, THC, compared with cocaine and heroin. Another argument of marijuana proponents is that marijuana is not addictive. People do not become desperate if they don't have marijuana. They do not go out there robbing convenience stores if they don't have money to buy it. There is no withdrawal caused by marijuana use. Indeed, that frantic feeling that you get when you have no access to street drug is not that prominent with marijuana. While it is true that winning off marijuana is far less painful than winning off alcohol, heroin, and cocaine, Without question, a withdrawal reaction does exist. In a study by David Alsop in Sydney, Australia, 49 subjects who smoked marijuana at least five days per week for at least three months have agreed to stop smoking marijuana for two weeks and fill questionnaires about their daily emotional state. Abstinence verification was done with urine toxicology screens. The graphical representation of the results of these questionnaires are hard to dispute as a proof that confirms the existence of marijuana Withdrawal. Withdrawal symptoms appear quickly on the second day, reach its peak in five days, and begin to descend and gradually fade away in 12 to 14 days. Withdrawal symptoms, as they are reported by patients, are nervousness, insomnia, sadness, anxiety. So there are no physical symptoms, as in the case of alcohol or heroin, but only psychological symptoms. The withdrawal from marijuana, though discreet, was repeatedly proven in many scientific studies. Now, let's look at the argument that marijuana is not addictive. This idea reminds me of Mark Twain, who said, quote, Quitting smoking is very easy. I know it very well since I did it thousands of times, unquote marijuana is undeniably addictive laboratory mice after exposure to marijuana continue to self-administer just as they do with all other addictive substances to become addicted means to meet the criteria for diagnosis of dependency as defined by the dsm-5 or icd-10 dsm-5 is diagnostic statistical manual fifth edition and ICD is in the International Classification of Disease, also in the 10th edition. Let me remind you that after ICD-10 diagnostic system, addiction is present when the patient meets three out of five criteria at any time in the year preceding the assessment. In the SM-5 system of diagnostic, uh, conditions for addiction are even easier to meet as they involve the presence of at least two out of a long list of 11 criteria at any time in the year preceding the assessment. I will not go into details, but the criteria for addiction are common for both systems ICD-10 and DSM-5. As, for example, intense desire to smoke marijuana, withdrawal when marijuana is abruptly interrupted, tolerance to the intoxicating effects of marijuana, continued use of marijuana despite legal, interpersonal, financial, professional problems it creates, and so on. You have to be completely blind or deaf to ignore these signs in certain users of marijuana. Yes, indeed, not all people who smoke marijuana end up developing the kind of problems that constitute a diagnosis of addiction. As with other drugs, only a minority of users become dependent, but that does not mean that there is no such a thing as addiction to marijuana. Another issue that marijuana enthusiasts raise is that marijuana, which has a much smaller direct toxicity than alcohol and tobacco, is deemed to be a poison while alcohol and tobacco are absolutely legal. That is indeed true. There is an inconsistency there. But if humanity has already made the mistake to accept alcohol and tobacco as legal, does that mean that we should continue to repeat these mistakes and legalize marijuana and cocaine and heroin maybe? Don't we have the responsibility to learn from our errors and not repeat the mistakes of the past? After all, the decision to legalize marijuana is a political one. We as psychiatrists can only inform the public and politicians of the scientific facts. And even if marijuana will be legalized, that doesn't change the fact that using this product doesn't bring anything of value to human society except maybe for a very transitory artificial and non-sustainable feeling of well-being for which you pay later too high of a price through decreased intellectual abilities, decreased motivation in actualizing your full potential, worsening any underlying psychiatric problem, or even creating one in a context in which none should have existed. It would be a mass self-deception to justify legalizing marijuana for medical reasons, or even more absurd, for recreational purposes. We must call things as they are. Marijuana is no more than just another vice like alcohol, tobacco, drugs, gambling, prostitution. The only somewhat philosophical justification to legalize marijuana would be the principle of giving as much personal freedom as possible to all the members of the society even if it runs the risk of people making some hopefully few stupid decisions as well components of cannabis plant studied refined and precisely quantified such as Marinol or Sativex of course must be looked at and incorporated into medicine but only if they prove their curative properties in double-blind placebo-controlled studies, and only if the risk of side effects is far outweighed by their therapeutic benefits. Marihuana has the potential to lead to elegant medical solutions for certain diseases, but that is for the medical field to establish. And until then, those who do not mind taking risks with their health should limit themselves to alcohol and tobacco which already caught deep cultural roots before people had the chance to understand the massive damage that they cause. And now it's probably too late to eradicate them through political action. But in the case of marijuana, it might still not be too late.